So we're going to be in Isaiah 1. And uh, I, I did a message on October 18th or 19th, and it was called Type and Shadow. This is going to kind of be a part two to this. I didn't plan on this, but I got to the end of this message, and I was like, I think that's basically what this is, is a type part two. And, um, but what we're going to do over the next three weeks is today we're going to talk about what the world was like back before Jesus. When, when the prophecy started just kind of like coming in, what was the culture of specifically the Israelites before? Next week, I'm going to try my best to uh, attempt to talk about the world in between the Old and New Testament. So like what all was happening, uh, Alexander the Great, a common language coming in, roads and all this stuff being built because it is huge. Because, you know, we say like the 400 years were the silent years where God wasn't speaking, but there was a lot of stuff happening that made way for Jesus. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't just like God didn't speak for 400 years and here comes Jesus. It was like I mean, roads were being built. Economic stuff was coming in from the Greeks. And even though there was oppression, it was a common language. So when the Bible gets written in Greek, it's a common language everybody can see and speak. and talk. You know what I'm saying? And so it's just a lot of uh, awesome stuff that's happening in that time in between. We're going to talk about some of that next week so that when we get to our Christmas service, we kind of have a full view of what is happening when Jesus burst onto the scene, literally. So... Um, anyway, here we go. We're going to be in Isaiah 1. I'm going to read some, and then we'll, uh, we'll get right in. Everybody good? Okay, awesome. As I've said many times in the past, to fully grasp who Jesus was and what Jesus did, or I should say who Jesus is, but and what Jesus did, we must better understand the context of the world Jesus was born into. And to do that, we must understand what led up to the world that Jesus was born into. Isaiah was considered by some of the early church fathers the great prophet. That's what they called him. Um, some of the early church fathers even sarcastically called the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel because of how much Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John leaned on Isaiah. Um, so it was almost kind of like a, a sideways way of referring to Isaiah the fifth gospel because of how, mu how much it related to um, the actual Gospels. Anyway, prophets in this time did not fulfill their ministries by writing books. So God didn't call Isaiah to write the book of Isaiah. It happened, like, there, there is a book of Isaiah, but prophets in that time did not fulfill their ministries by sitting down and writing a bunch of stuff. Okay? And of course, if you read any of the Old Testament, we know that. Um, here's how a prophet fulfilled their ministry they would go out into a public place. So, for example, we would say maybe the temple courts in Jerusalem. But they would go to a public place and they would preach whatever message they've been given to anyone who would listen and sometimes primarily, in the case of Isaiah and the other prophets, to those who didn't want to listen. But that was the job of, of the prophets. It was not to sit down and write a bunch of books and praise God we've got you know books, but it was to proclaim a message for a time and for a people, right? Isaiah's ministry happens about 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus. Before the exiles, the Israels, or excuse me, the Israelites, I should say, had completely forgotten their covenant partner, Yahweh. The one who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of all, the one who brought them out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the land God swore their ancestors, the God who delivered them from the hands of their enemies and blessed them beyond measure, who dwelled with them, making his home in the temple with them. This is the God who they have forgotten. 
Listen to what Deuteronomy 8.18 says. It says, remember. Now, the word remember is the Hebrew word zakar, and it means to keep on the forefront of your mind. So when it says remember, it doesn't say like, hey, in 10 years, make sure you write something down so it can pop back in your head. That's not what he's saying. He's saying keep this as your eyes for every single thing that you do. Remember. Keep it on the front of your mind. So remember the Lord your God. This is Deuteronomy 8.18. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Okay? Remember the Lord your God. He is the one that confirms his covenant to you. But then in verse 19, he says that if they forget, if they leave this in the past and go after worshiping something else, they would, and the Hebrew word is all bad. And it means to break, to fail, to lose, to be lost, to perish, to be spent. That's why I I didn't read the actual English word, because you miss all of that. All of those words are what the Hebrew word means right there. Okay, So he says, if you leave what God did in the past as if it is something that was, not something that is, if you do that, then what's going to happen is you're going to be spent. You're going to be lost. You're going to break. You're going to fail. This is all current stuff. Okay? We would say, in the language that I've been using lately, you're going to go down a road of delusion. Things that don't exist. Okay, The idea is that you lose yourself, your real self, and therefore go the way of formlessness, nothingness, and destruction if you forget. That's what God is saying. If you forget, you're not going to know how to live. Okay? So we, we make verses like that. We make every single thing we believe about God eschatological, which means theology of the end. We make every single thing about God about what happens in the future. And none of what this is talking about primarily has to do with what's happening in the future. It has to do with what's happening now, which later on will result something that happens in the future. Do you see what I'm saying? But every single thing we believe. So we'll, we'll read verse 19 and we'll translate it, uh, if you forget and go after worshiping other gods, you will, and we'll use that word and say, you'll be destroyed. And we'll say, okay, we know what that means. If you forget, when you die, you're not making it to heaven. That's not what this is talking about. You understand? This is talking about something now. And the reason that's so important, I'm going to talk about this in a second. That's so important because we'll keep going down a road of delusion because we don't think it has anything to do with our lives right now. And as long as we keep pushing it into the future, we'll keep not living right now until it results in us not living then. You know what I'm saying? Or whatever you want to say. But, but what Yahweh's trying to do is get the Israelites to wake up to here and now. If you will live by way of understanding my ways and what I have done and what I am doing, you will have life now, which of course will result in life then. You know what I'm saying? Y'all with me? Okay. So they have fulfilled, the Israelites, by Isaiah's time in the 700s B.C., verse 19 rather than verse 14. They have chosen their own path. They've left God in the past. 
They've started living for themselves, what benefits them. And as a result, they are headed down a road of destruction without even being aware of it. This is where we are, okay? Right smack in the middle of this comes Isaiah with a commission to, this is Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. This is what he was called to do, okay? And this is what it says. Go and tell this people, keep listening, but don't understand. Keep looking, but don't acknowledge. Fatten this people's minds. Make its ears, um, excuse me, make its ears heavy. I didn't understand what I wrote there. Smear its eyes so that it doesn't see with its eyes and listen with its ears and its mind understand and it turn and there is healing for it. Essentially what God is telling Isaiah to preach is a message that they will not understand and therefore because they don't understand they won't change their mind about so that God can ultimately get them down to the stump. This is really, really, like a really odd passage in Isaiah 6. We never talk about it being really odd, but it is really odd. Because Isaiah is in this temple. He has this vision of the train of his robe filling the temple. And he has this moment that all the you know, evangelical missions people love to say, Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. You know what I'm saying? Y'all ever heard of me? Here am I, send me. And like, he wasn't talking about going to Hawaii for a vacation. No, okay. um, but here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. And what the Lord responds with is says, awesome. If you read the, the Hebrew, and there's some commentary about this depending on where you're reading this. But in the Hebrew, what Isaiah is experiencing is God's counsel, we would say. Almost having this meeting that Isaiah has found himself in. And when, Isaiah, and when the Lord says, who's going to go for us? It's, it's almost the equivalent in Hebrew of the Lord's counsel looking for a volunteer because this people has so forgotten who they are. They're saying, like, who on earth can we get to send this message to our people? Isaiah being there says, hey, send me. You know what I'm saying? And the Lord says, amazing. Thanks, Isaiah. Here's the message you are to go tell the people. You're to go tell them a message that they will not understand. And because they don't understand, they won't repent. Change how they think. And because they won't repent, they're going to be cut down to the stump. But because they're cut down to the stump, the end is going to be the beginning. And Isaiah is like, I mean, can you imagine? You, Isaiah's got to be thinking, man, I'm about to get another like uh, Ten Commandments moment or whatever. You know. And the Lord says, here's the message. I want you to go preach a message, and they're going to look at you like you're a fool. Salah. You know what I'm saying? I've, Lord, I've felt that <laughs> just about every week. But you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm going to give you a message they're not going to understand, and that's on purpose. So, he tells Isaiah, though, that the end, or what seems like the end, won't be the end. It will be the beginning of a work that is going to completely redeem, save, and set free God's people once and for all. This is what verse 13 says. The stump will be the holy seed. Now, let me point out a couple of just side things right now, okay? A couple of things. Everything in the ancient world was communal, meaning the design of God's people has always been and will always be together, okay? 
our worldview, specifically since the Enlightenment period, 19th century, is individualistic. It's me, 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 me. That's how we view the world. Their worldview was we, 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 we. Okay? It wasn't what am I called to do for them, for example. It was what are we called to do and what role do I play in what we are called to do. I mean, how many messages have y'all heard about that? The Lord has got a purpose for you. No, the Lord's got a purpose for us. You know what I'm saying? And we play roles in that. But what we we have so, we've made this about what what am I what big thing am I going to do? What dreams do I have? And what the Israelites would have heard, and what they would have had discussions about, particularly before they lost their ever loving mind, is what are we dreaming about? They would sit in church like this, and it wouldn't be, hey, you know, I'm called to do big things. This is just I'm just here for a season. I'm just I'm just here just for a look. I'm called to do big things, or whatever. They would sit in a room and say. No, this, this is what we are called to do. So I'm going to lay down my ambitions, and I'm going to lay down what I think for the sake of taking up something that we have ambitions for. And that's how the gospel spread across the world in one generation. In one generation, the entire known world knew the gospel of the early church. One generation. And it's because they, every, we read this in Acts, daily, they ate together, and they communed together. And that doesn't mean we have to get together and eat lunch together every day. But what, what Acts is saying is everything they did was about each other. None of it was about my purpose and my calling. You, you know what I'm saying? This is anti every single thing that most of us have ever heard. It's all about my assignment and my calling and my purpose and my dreams. And the problem is, is most of the time, in order for you to achieve whatever you think your dreams or purposes are, you've got to cut everybody else's dreams and purposes down to get there. But as long as I'm pushing for my calling and my purpose and my thing, it don't matter. That's all part of the, pro- the plan of God. If anything that you do cuts down somebody else's thing that they do, it's not God's calling over your life. You, you hear what I'm saying? If you've got to cut somebody else down to get a promotion, that promotion is not for you. And, and then what will begin to happen is everybody else around you, I've had this happen, will start doing the things that you thought you always wanted to do. And right there in that moment, you can either curse their names and curse God and all that stuff because they're doing things that you've worked so hard for, or you could thank God that they're playing the role that they're supposed to play in this and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he can exalt you. You, you know what I'm saying? But this, this, this is, what if politics work like that? Dear Lord, what if instead of saying, I want this and I want this and y'all have to choose, what if two sides got together and said, what do we want? What would further our country, not my version? What would happen? We don't know. It's never happened. You know what I mean? So, so that was the mindset. So when you're reading this stuff, I'm about to read it to you. When you're reading this stuff, we got to be real careful that we don't take this and warp it to our point of view, which is individualistic. Okay? You play an individual role in a body. So that's number one. That's number one. Number two, that's going to be really difficult for us to grab, is that the ancient people of God did not view salvation in terms of the afterlife. 
They viewed salvation in terms of this world and this age. That's why Jesus said things like, your kingdom come on earth. Not get us to heaven. Jesus said, when you pray, here's how you need to pray. Father, bring your kingdom here where we are as it is in heaven. That doesn't mean you don't go to heaven. It just means when we're reading this language, believe and you'll be saved. We say, praise God, believe you'll be in heaven. Sure. But what he's saying when it says believe and you'll be saved is think as God thinks and you'll be set free to live here and now. That, you, know, you know what I'm saying? The, the huge. So, like, is faith required for you to be saved? Absolutely. Because you've got to agree with how God sees things in order for you to be set free to live Zoe life now. We're not talking about the afterlife. We're talking about now. That's why you're hard-pressed to find a bunch of writing on the afterlife in the New Testament. All they were focused on was God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And whatever happens after that, we trust God. We'll be with Jesus. Paul says, I'd rather be with Jesus, but for your sake, I'm here. That's, that's the best description of heaven we got in the New Testament. Well, brother, what about the pearly gates? That's new creation and resurrection that's going to be here. The pearly gates and streets of gold and walls of jasper and all that stuff is new creation language. You know, you know what I'm saying? But, but we've thrown that out the door because all we're focused on is getting out of this big bad place that Jesus said was going to be his home for eternity. See, I told you I was going to be hard for y'all to get. That's okay. Jesus came to save humanity to live and be everything that we were made to live and be. We have made salvation exclusively about the afterlife. I'm not saying it's not about the afterlife. I'm saying it is not primarily about the afterlife. Okay? Combined with our individualistic mindset I just talked about, we have Christians who have repeated a prayer for themselves to be in heaven when they die, and since they got their ticket punch, it doesn't matter if they come to church, it doesn't matter if they get involved in community, it doesn't matter if they care about anybody else, or have any real relationship with Yahweh, unless, of course, through partying or sleeping around, whatever the case, you look at the wrong things, you do the wrong things, they need to renew their ticket, at which point the process starts all over, and they come back to church, they get their ticket repunched, and then they go away because they don't need it anymore, because they pray to prayer, and their individual behinds are going to be in heaven one day. So why church? Which is exactly why you see people today saying, I don't need church. I can do church on my own. No, 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 no. You can be lost as a <laughs> you can be lost out of your mind on your own, but you cannot live in this without this. Y'all real quiet. <clears throat> What we're going to see today is that the first fruit of their Israelites, lost minds, is that they stop caring about we and start solely caring about me. You're about to see this is going to be amazing. But Yahweh was going to chop the me tree down to the stump in order to find, reveal, and save their original purpose, which is the Holy Seed, which is we. Okay, so Isaiah 1, let's just read this. Isaiah 1, verse 1, starting in verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Verse 2. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner, owner's man, manger. Excuse me. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. I need to say this real quick before we keep going. The book of Isaiah is like a movie that you start in the middle and then you backtrack and then you go through to the end. Have you ever seen a movie like that where, um, and I forget what the movie's called, but it's with Will Smith and it's where like different people are dying so they give their body parts to somebody else. And what's that movie called? Seven pounds, seven pounds. This movie does this. I was confused the whole movie until the very end. And I was so mad. And then I got to the end, I was like, actually, that was a really good movie. But you have no idea what has happened. Literally, the, the entire hour and a half, you're like, I don't know what I'm watching right now. Until the last, like, five minutes, and you're like, uh, okay, I totally get this. Isaiah's not exactly like that, but that movie starts at a certain place and then back, backtracks and then gives you all the backstory, and then ends in the end and brings everything to a conclusion. The book of Isaiah is similar to that. What we get in Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 2, and really the next few chapters, is a 10,000-foot view of, essentially, this is what you're about to read. Okay? So Isaiah 1 is a great chapter if you're trying to get like a 100,000-foot view of what Isaiah is doing. Okay? Um, also... When, when these, the book of Isaiah, most scholars believe was written by multiple different people. That doesn't bother me. I could care less who wrote it. It's amazing. Um, but it is inspired by Isaiah the prophet. That's why it's called Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, as with the other prophets and as with the other writings, we, we've, we have, in the West only, have completely ejected mankind from the Bible. And because we have said, which I don't argue with, but because we have said this is the infallible Word of God, which I do believe this is, this is the Word of God, because we have said that, what we think is one day a leather-bound Bible in King James fell out of the sky, landed onto this plot of earth, and bam, here we have it. The problem is, is when we read certain things, that seem to contradict themselves or seem to not make sense, that becomes a direct attack against God because we've rejected humanity in the entire Bible. Okay? And, and what we need to view Scripture as is God and man partnering in bringing about a story that all makes sense in Jesus. This should not make total sense until you get to a virgin giving birth to the Messiah. And at that point, and at the ministry of Jesus, suddenly what wasn't 100% clear is now 100% clear. You see what I'm saying? So, so when we read this, Isaiah was given a mission to preach a message people don't understand. But if I'm my people... So if y'all had lost your, your minds, which... Sometimes we do that. If y'all had lost your minds, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach it. Let me, use, let me use Veda. Let me use Veda. I don't want to use y'all. Let me use Veda. We love Veda. There's nothing Veda could ever do to not be our daughter, right? Amen. But there are certain times where she is, you know, doing something that she's not supposed to be doing or, or whatever, or particularly other kids that their parents aren't on Facebook or whatever, and they're doing, not doing what they're supposed to be doing, okay? Now, when, when me and Jordan bring correction, sometimes that correction is a little harsher than other times. 
because we know this isn't what she's supposed to be doing, right? The, the harshness of our correction has nothing to do with her identity. It has everything to do with us trying to wake her up. So we take a, maybe we'll take a toy for a few days because she's not. And in that, we, the design was never to withhold toys from her. The design was for her to stop doing what she was doing. You'll see Isaiah using some language in this that is some harsh language. And the reason that he's using this language is because, remember, these people have no idea who they are, but they don't know they have no idea who they are. They're lost, and they think they're 100% found. This sounds like the Pharisees, right? When Jesus says to the Pharisees, make sure that the light in you is not actually darkness. You know what I'm saying? So the Israelites have lost their way, but they think they never lost their way. They're still providing sacrifices. They're still going to the temple. They're still doing all the stuff they're supposed to be doing. They're completely lost. So Isaiah is using language to say, wake up or you will die. Whether or not that's, he's using that language to wake them up, not give, this is the word of the Lord. You see what I'm saying? And that's okay. Because this is all God and man wrestling through this thing until there's a baby born. And it's amazing. And so when you read that, suddenly the Bible is fun to read because you're included in this. You, know, you see Isaiah wrestling with things that don't make 100% sense to him. That's okay. That's why it's in here. You see that? So when you read this, you don't every single thing is okay to say, Isaiah was processing that right there, and that is still infallible because that's how we were supposed to receive it. You, you know what I'm saying? Y'all good? Okay, Lord, I'm going to get some stuff about that. That's okay. Um, is it, so let me read this. Let me read it. Let me just go back. I'm going to start at verse 3. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people don't understand. Verse 4. Just some of that language. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, uh, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? I want you to hear Isaiah preaching this to a bunch of people around him that, have, that don't want to hear what he's saying. Like if I go sit on that corner today and started preaching... Every person that walked past me would be like, can you just go home? Like, we, we got other stuff to do. You know what I'm saying? I've done that to other people. It's not right. But, you know, so this is Isaiah. So he's trying to get these people to say, let's stop and listen, okay? He says, your whole head is injured and your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, which is ironically his own country as well. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you laid waste when over, excuse me, as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. So now he's calling Jerusalem Sodom, which for them, I know we don't get this stuff, 
would have been basically like her, so heretical, it's not even funny. You're calling the city of God Sodom. But this is what I, so Isaiah is trying to say, like, so that would have turned some heads. You know what I mean? Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. I love that. That's the word of the Lord. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Okay? He's, it's, it's what's in here that provides that sacrifice that I care about. I don't care what you're doing. I care about the heart behind what you're doing. Okay. <clears throat> when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop, listen to this, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath, convocations, I care not, cannot bear your worthless assemblies. That's a, that, that's a big one right there. Big one right there for America right now. I can't bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate them with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. It's so interesting. Does God become weary? You know what I'm saying? But this is how heavy. They keep doing the right acts, but inside they don't have a clue. And the Lord is saying, you don't understand. I don't care about the acts. I don't care about the blood. I care about you. But because you keep bringing me things just because you're supposed to do it, when the inside of you is totally lost, it's become a burden to me. Why? Because I know who you are. And every time you approach me not being who I know you are, it becomes a burden to me because I know what you're supposed to be. Okay. <clears throat> When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. Now, here's, here's where we're going to hang out today. He says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight and stop doing them. And then he says what the evil deeds are. Or he says what the right deeds are that they're not doing that's called evil. Here's what they are. He says, learn to do right. That's what he says. Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. I want you to remember that right there. What is right? What does it mean to do right? Okay. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, with every single burden, he brings redemption on the other side. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay, remember, just picture that there and then. They resisted, they rebelled, and what happened? Assyria and Babylon invaded, and they were devoured by the sword. Then and there. Okay? Verse 21, see how the faithful city has become a prostitute. So we're going a little further. She was once full of justice, okay? If you missed it, 
Learn to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. That was their charge. They, did, they weren't doing that. Okay? Now he says, you used to be full of justice, and righteousness used to dwell in you, but now you're murderers. Your silver has become like dross. I love this right here. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after their gifts. Or chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. There they are, all four right there. Okay? Therefore, how is God going to respond to this? What's God going to do in response in order to fix this? You ready? Therefore, therefore, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, I, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. Now, hear this. I will turn my hand against you, and I will, why? I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all of your impurities. I just, I don't think we got that. Because we'll stop when he says, uh, I will turn my hand against you. See, right there. No, what is he saying? The reason he's doing all this is to purge away the dross and remove our impurities. Why does he want to do that? Because this is what he wants to do. I will restore your leaders as in the days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And verse 27, I'll stop here, and I would love to keep going, but I, just, I don't have time to go through the whole thing. Verse 27, Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. We just went through the whole story. He brought us where they are, where they're going, what happens depending on what they do, and ultimately what God's going to do in response if they resist. What does God do in response if they resist? He lets them go into their resistance. Why does he do that? Because ultimately, he's going to remove all their impurities. Okay, so uh, let me start at verse 3, and then I'm going to just track my way through. Verse 3 says, Israel does not know, and they don't understand. The word know is yada, and it means intimate, experiential knowledge. Okay? So when it says Israel doesn't know, it means they haven't been in intimacy to experience my knowledge. That's what that Hebrew word means. Okay? When it says they don't understand, the word ben, it has a lot of different meanings. It is, there's no way you could get one English word, even though they do this. But there's no way one English word can get the meaning of this. Um, we could say it means to discern. Uh, if, you're, if you're not operating in this, it means you're not operating with your senses right like your five senses, um, it means essentially that they don't know how to think correctly is what the Hebrew word means. Their senses are off. Something's off so they can't perceive correctly. Okay, that's what this word means. So they don't think correctly. So Israel doesn't know by intimate experience and therefore they don't know how to think. That's what verse 3 is saying. Isaiah proceeds to prophesy the utter destruction that they have placed themselves in and how God doesn't want their meaningless offerings, right? He wants the real them 
and the whole them, but he absolutely rejects the fake them that they have created. My, uh, my great-grandma, uh, we called her Granny, Doris was her name. I remember at, towards the, well, for years before she passed away, we would go see her in the nursing home, and she very rarely knew my name. And I forget the name she used to call me, but it was not Josh. Um, huh? Yeah, she used to say Josh, but then at one point she, uh, she called me some other guy in the family, and she called you somebody else in the family. But, um, but anyway, she's just obviously, like, every now and then it would be like, I kind of know who this is, kind of don't know who this is. But, uh, but for the most part, it was just like, just, I don't know. I, I kind of get a sense that this is something I should know, but I just don't. You know what I mean? Just, that's what Alzheimer's does. Um, but here's why I'm bringing that up. We never got angry at her for forgetting, right? But we absolutely got mad at the thing that caused her to lose her right mind, which was Alzheimer's, right? Have you, have you had anybody in your family that's had Alzheimer's? At no point do you sit there and say, I can't believe you're not remembering. Because you know there is something there that is causing the forgetfulness, right? So instead you aim your anger at the thing that's causing the forgetfulness, Okay? This is a, a perfect example of what God is doing. God is angry to the Israelites that this diseased identity has become something so lost that it's hardly recognizable anymore. But don't mistake that for God not wanting them, which is why at the end of all of this, He says, I'm going to purge all the sickness from you so that I can restore you as you were before. Okay? Okay? I just new new churches and new ways of doing church are not the answer to America's church crisis. Right minds are. But in order to get there, Yahweh is first delivering a message right now in the earth that most do not and will not understand, and because they don't understand it. They don't change, and since they won't change, Yahweh is cutting the tree down to the stump. But there we find redemption. Why, the past two years, why are so many churches closing? Because Yahweh's trying to get us back down to the stump to say, oh, that's what this is. And there are some places that are hearing the word of the Lord. And there are some places that are hearing the word of the Lord, but they don't understand the word of the Lord because they don't understand the word of the Lord. They're still doing the same stuff that got them in the junk in the first place. They learned nothing during COVID. Absolutely nothing. You know what I'm saying? For two years, God has given us an opportunity to repent because we're losing money anyway. Why not change our ways while everything's going down the drain and instead we think maybe we can put out more bounce houses, maybe we can go into more debt, maybe we can do things more relevant and people will come back. People aren't looking for relevancy. I, we, I mean, that was some 30 years ago maybe. People, are look, people aren't looking for relevancy anymore. If you go to USC and ask why you don't go to church, it is not because they don't have fog machines. I, I'm being real. You know what I'm saying? If you go and ask why they don't go to church, you know what they'll probably tell you, if I had to guess, if they're not already in church? Because it's not real. I, and so what we've done in response to that is we keep trying to do the show thinking if we can do a big enough Broadway performance, people will come back. 
if we forget the show, be real. And if you're real, I promise you people are going to start coming back. There's going to come a day when the Lord is ready to release us, and I'm not in a hurry for this day. But there is coming a day soon. I was talking to a pastor this week that's about 70 years old, sitting in my office. And we talked for a while, and he looked at me and he said, I know, he, he, he prophesied, that. he didn't even know he's prophesying this, but I was, I about fell out in the spirit. But, I, you know what I mean? But he was sitting there, and he was talking, and he said, you know, in Scripture, when the Lord brings numbers down to, and Lee McDermott told me this a couple weeks ago, so that's why it was just super conf- confirmation, but he said this this week, and Lee has said this before too, but he said, you know when the Lord brings your numbers down, it's a sign that he wants to do something of great authority. Like Gideon could not defeat that army with thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers. He could only do it with 300 who weren't scared. You know what I'm saying? And so there's going to come a day when the Lord releases this house to be the beacon of light in this area. There's going to come a day. And I'm not in a hurry for that day to happen too quick or else we're, we're, we're not going to make it through it. You know what I'm saying? But there's going to come that day. And what's going to bring people here, and hopefully what brought you here, was not the fact that this is a great show because we don't have a show. You know what I'm saying? We don't. But it's the fact that when you walk in the doors, the one thing you know beyond the shadow of a doubt is there's some real people in there. And they're really going after the Lord. And they really care about this. And hopefully you look at me and say, not that I do great messages. I hope you look at my life and say, he's actually in love with Jesus. You know? Not that he gives great messages. I want you to look at me and say, I want to love Jesus like he loves Jesus. That's my goal as a pastor. Like when I wake up and spend time with the Lord in the mornings, it's not because I need a message. It's because I want to. It's because I love to, you know? And so what, what Isaiah is trying to bring about is a harsh enough message to wake them up to the fact they're lost, okay? But he also doesn't want to lose in the harshness of his message the truth that God is bringing redemption. If Isaiah went out and said, the Lord's going to take us back to the days of old, there is no changing of mind. They think, praise God, this is amazing. Isaiah's first got to wake them up to realize they're lost so that when they find themselves and when they allowed Yahweh to find themselves, then redemption can come in. Okay, so in verses uh, 16 and through 27, this is where we're going to hang out, and then I'm almost done. So, and I promise, that's not a lie. Isaiah gets to the core of his message right here and gets to the core of their delusion. Yahweh tells them what their evil deeds are. But they're not what we think when we hear the phrase evil deeds. Like, just for a second... Uh, when you, when, if I ask you, what are evil deeds, what comes to mind? Murder, you know, whatever, like uh, a plethora of different things come to your mind. None of them, without me having just read this, none of them have anything I would dare say to do with the communal life of a group of people. What are evil? Somebody murdering somebody else. What, you know what I mean? And Yahweh comes in and he tells them what their evil deeds are. And this is what he says. He says, they are not seeking justice. They are not defending the oppressed. They are not taking up the cause of the fatherless. And they are not pleading the case of the widow. How many of those have to do with me? None of them. None of them. That's the point. That the root of evil in the community of the family of God, at that time Israel is that they stop 
caring about the community and started only caring about themselves. And in verses 21 through 23, the same thing is repeated. He repeats the same exact thing, which is a linguistic styling to say this is the point. Okay? So th- this, is where, this is what we see today. Like, why is it so important for us to think communally? Why, why is that so important? Because God exists in community, the Trinity. And I know this word community is so overused. It's not even funny today. So I want y'all to like, get past that and just let me use this word for a little bit. I tried to find another word. This is the best word I've come up with. God exists in community, Father, Son, Spirit. And He created us within that community. Listen to this. Isolation is the epitome of formlessness. You and I were created by community, in community, and for community. The moment that we start thinking in terms of me exclusively, we begin living in the delusion. The moment we do that. When God looks at us, he doesn't see a bunch of individual bodies. He sees a bunch of individual parts of one body. Right? There's an amazing amen spot right there. That's okay. Y'all missed it. Get it next time. When he, when he looks at, he doesn't see Josh. He just sees Josh, the pastor, Jordan, the wife of the pastor, and the one leading kids. Veda, the daughter of the pastor, who one day is going to do this, and it's going to be great. Olivia, who has cool shoes usually, and is an amazing leader, and is going to be a great wife one day. You know what I'm saying? That's not what got it. He says, there's dream, and there's the head, and there's the hand, not the head, Jesus. There's the hand, there's the finger, there's the toe, there's, and it's all part of one. Let me use this, let me use this to help this. If someone sitting next to you breaks their leg, you tell them you're sorry for their injury and you move on with your life, right? That doesn't affect you. Sorry that happened to you. I got stuff to do, right? It's not a trick question. This is what we do. If you break your leg, you rush to the doctor and care for it until it is healed or as it should be. Why? Because it hurts you and affects the rest of your being's functionality. Amen? If, you're, if the person next to you breaks your leg, who cares? If you break your leg, it is a suddenly a big deal. Let me, let me read something to you real quick. It's 1 Corinthians 12. I don't want you all to take my word for it. I'll t- we'll take Paul's word for it. If I can get to it. Let me save my spot right here, though, because I'm going to absolutely lose it. Um, 1 Corinthians 12. Um, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians 12. Here we go. And I'm just read 12 uh, through... I'm going to tell you. Because you won't listen. Uh, just at, I want you to hear this. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but, it's, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. That's a huge statement. He first doesn't say that, he first says with Christ. What makes up Christ's body? Us. That's a huge statement right there. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, 
And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many parts. And he goes even further. He says, if the foot should say, I want you to hear this. Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. And if there were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but there's one body. The eye can't say, I want you to hear this, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker, you ready for this, are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. He's talking about weak parts of the body. We might even say weak parts of the community. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, and that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Check this out. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ. Not a body that is in relationship to Christ. You are the body of the Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Who is he talking to? Apparently, he's talking to Jews and Gentiles and slaves and frees. You know who that is? All. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And if you're not slave, you're free. That's everybody. You, you see what I'm saying? He says, if you are the body of Christ, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, all of you, then every single one of you is a part of it. Which means if there's a part that you're... Here's what Paul's doing. Lord, help me. Here's what Paul is doing. He's saying what you guys are doing, some of you, maybe most of you, is you're looking at people who you, A, don't think are a part of the body because of who they are. So Jews are looking at Gentiles as if they're not a part of this. Gentiles are looking at Jews like they shouldn't be a part of this because they killed Jesus. So, you got Gentiles and you got Jews, and they're looking at each other as if they're not a part of the same thing that they're a part of simply because of who they are. Here's what that means in our culture today we look at people who don't think like us, who don't act like us, who don't look like us, who don't vote like us, whatever. And we look at the other people and we say, you're not a part of what we're doing because of who you are. 
because of what you think, because of what you do. And what Paul is saying is you need to understand that every single person, Jew, Gentile, slave, and free, has been brought into the kingdom of God, which is the body of Christ. And by being brought into it, you better not look at somebody else as lesser, and you sure better not look at somebody else as if they're not a part of it. Because if they're suffering, you're suffering. This is what they're doing. They're walking around saying, well, they're going through their stuff, but I'm solid right now. So I'm going to let them deal with their stuff. And No, he's saying if they're dealing with their stuff, you're dealing with their stuff. And if you're walking through a storm, they're walking through a storm. This is one communal family, and the only way God's kingdom is going to infiltrate the globe is if the globe looks at us and sees something is different about those people. We're, listen, we, I'm going to get in so much hot water. We're the superpower of the world, right? That's what we pride ourselves in. Superpower of the world, right? Some of that's probably some propaganda. Some of that might be true. So we are the superpower of the world. And I said this Tuesday night. But here's, here's how I've always been taught leadership. And I think this is right. That the way you judge a leader is by the lowest person that they're leading. You don't, you don't judge how good of a leader I am based on staff members at this church. That's easy. They're, you know what I'm saying? You judge how good of a leader I am based on the most seemingly hidden and insignificant part of our church. Because if they're being overlooked, that says a lot about me as the leader of the person being overlooked. You see what I'm saying? So we, as America, we pride ourselves in being the superpower of the world, and we might be. The reason we call ourselves the superpower of the world is because we got nuclear bombs. And our, our thinking is, you act wrong, and we're going to blow you off the face of the planet. And that's why we're the superpower. I'm looking at us being the superpower of the world, and I'm saying, this says a lot about us, that there are people around us that we absolutely have the resources to affect their way of life, but we don't because it doesn't affect us, because we're solid, and it doesn't matter what people are doing around us. That's what religion has become here. That's what has happened, right? It, listen, if a... Uh, Lord, how far do we go? If a church gets blown up and people pass away in that explosion, we have a prayer service. If a mosque gets blown up and people get killed in that service, we say, praise God, it was supposed to happen. And their way of believing is absolutely not right. But you better believe what we are called to do as the body is bring... How on earth is anybody who's in a mosque ever going to come into the truth if all we're doing is say they're getting blown up because they deserve it? That's not, we deserve to die too. But while we were still sinners, that happened. You, know, you see what I'm saying? What, what if we love the people around us and say, while you are still sinner, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Our globe would be completely transformed. You talk about spreading the gospel, you talk about the kingdom coming, we wouldn't have to wait for a rapture. We can see his kingdom come here and now because that's what it is. We, we don't seek justice. We don't offend, defend the oppressed. We don't take up the cause of the fathers, and we don't plead the case of the widow. We don't do that. And we wonder why we're in the mess we're in. It's not because of COVID. It's not because of politics. It's because we don't seek justice, don't defend the oppressed, don't take up the cause of the father. All we care about is us. So the first thing that Yahweh is going to do in this movement of the kingdom, which is why a lot of people won't understand it, is I believe, I'm hoping this is the case for me, he's going to start humbling some exalted places 
and exalting some humble places until we all wake up to the fact that you and I are on the same team. Not only are we on the same team, you and I have equal amounts of influence on that team. There is no superstar on this team. If there is, it's Jesus. But it's not me. When it comes to Dream Church, it's not. This is Josh Brown Church, and there's a bunch of people in it. This is our church, and I play a certain role in that. But it is not more important than other roles. And and this is what's going to happen, is we're going to see the superstar church movement start to be humbled. And we're going to see superstars in the church movement start to be humbled. And we're going to see people exalted that we would have never dreamed were going to be exalted. We're going to see dads who have been completely hidden, who have been working their job, been faithful to their families, been faithful to their kids, that have no platform. We're going to start, I'm praying, we're going to start seeing them be the leaders of what the kingdom looks like in the earth. We're going to start seeing moms who are stay-at-home moms that have given their life to raise their kids. You don't have to be a stay-at-home mom. I'm just using this because Jordan's a stay-at-home mom. But that have given their lives to their kids that have been completely hidden, that have completely laid down. Jordan has laid down any dream she has ever had for a career to raise our daughter. Do you see this? And I can say this because she's not in here. She has laid down any ambition of her own personal goals to raise one little girl. You t- If somebody's going to lead this kingdom movement, I want it to be that person who said, I don't have to make a name for myself. I want to raise this daughter faithfully in the ways of the Lord. That's it. You know what I mean? And suddenly when we start seeing this, all the insignificant places in our world, which is anything but having a platform and a mic right now, all of a sudden, they become just as important as having a platform and mic. And suddenly, having a platform and mic does not look that appealing. Praise God. You know, back in the day, nobody wanted to be a pastor. Like, being a pastor 50 years ago was like something nobody wanted to be. Today, everybody wants to start a church. You know why? Because I can get followers and I can be cool if I start a church. I, I, didn't do, I started this church and commit, committed cool suicide. I'm not cool anymore. Nobody cares about me. And you know what? We're seeing God's kingdom come in this place because of that. Okay. The delusion is thinking that someone else's brokenness does not affect you. It does. Because we aren't a bunch of different individuals with individual calling or purpose, we are one with individual purposes to fulfill the ultimate purpose of the one. This is who we are. Just about done. Let me, let me just, uh, real quick. I should drink water. I'm drinking coffee. More coffee. Um, our, the church, and we're, this is what I'm praying about coming in next year. I want us to have a, and I'm puke as I'm saying, a, a vision, a set of glasses as a church that it solely revolves around us. You know what I'm saying? Because a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the visions in the churches is, the typical one, the most common one is uh, reach people far from God and make disciples, okay? Uh, I I think it's really ironic that there are hardly any mission statements in the church that have anything to do with God. (laughs) We're going to reach people. That's amazing. But if they don't come into the room and find God there, it don't matter. You know what I'm saying? Bro, I'm going to reach people. No, let's reach God, and I guarantee you we'll start reaching people. But anyway... But I want us to have a focus and a mission as a church that has nothing to do with the ministry platform reaching people. 
It has everything to do with us becoming who we are designed to become and that becoming its own contagious virus is a bad word because this is a good thing, but its own contagious thing that begins to catch on to people in the community and all of a sudden you're inviting people to our church not to come and hopefully you don't do this already but not to come hear a message and not to come hear a worship band you're inviting people to church because there is family and you belong in it you know what i mean like so so that's what we're going into but in order to do that in order to do that and i'm gonna say this like i need you to take this serious some of you do, some of you don't. Amen, brother. Right? Like, I need you to be here. Well, it's all about church. Yeah, it is, yes. Like, we, why do we do Tuesday nights? It's not so I can sit around and just what, shoot the crud. You know what I'm saying? We show up on Tuesday nights... Because we are bringing a kingdom into the globe. This is, this is big. And what happens, let me ask, let me ask, let me just, let me just really, let me just dig into this. Um, we value our jobs. We value our jobs because they provide us money. And with that money, we can pay for our livelihoods. Right? So we value our jobs. We don't value the church, typically, which is why it's so easy to just skip out. Who cares? And the reason we don't value it is because we don't think that this has anything to do with our livelihoods because we think individualistic. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm this. I'm that. The church is not a bunch of eyes. It's a bunch of wheeze. And so when one part of the body is missing, if I walked in here and chopped off my leg outside before I walked in the door, y'all gonna have to call an ambulance because I need my leg for me to do anything. We need you. Not because we have a bunch of volunteer offer. We don't. We need you because you are an essential part of this body functioning as it's designed to function. God brought you in here to be a piece of a functioning body, not an observer. You know what I'm saying? And so I say that with, like, like we are an amazing church about tithing, but the reason we don't tithe is because I can't afford it. I can't do this. I don't have enough money for this. I'm not going to be able to plan for this. It's not we. What Tithing would be effortless if we said, what is our purpose and what role do I play in that? One of the roles I play in it is making sure we can even have a purpose by turning the lights on. So I'm going to give. I have a purpose with the Lord. So I'm going to get. See, everything begins to take shape. Why are we doing this for, two, for families on Tuesday nights? Because in Columbia, we're not here to just be a bunch of ministry people screaming stuff out. I want to buy stuff for family that, by the way, they're not going to know who gave them those. The, the, the people that we are partnered with, it's all anonymous. They have no clue it's coming from Dream Church. And we know their first names. We don't know their last names. We don't know who they are. They have been vetted by an organization that goes through and confirms uh, uh, income levels and all this other stuff. And then we were just given the people, which is why we do this. Because I can't stand up here on stage and bring this family up and say, look what we did. 
know what I'm saying? And they can't say, you know what, I want to go to that church because I kind of feel obligated to it because they just bought all of our gifts. If they ever show up to this church, it'll, because, it'll be because there's family here, not because we threw money at them. Do you see what I'm saying? But why are we doing that? Because I want Columbia to be the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And the way we do that is we play our role. And the way that we do that is for all these other churches to wake up and start playing their role. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's why I'm not against other churches. and I'm against the spirit that has infiltrated a lot of it. But I, I want every church around us to be so on. I want the Greek Orthodox Church right here to be so on fire for the Lord that every Greek Orthodox person knows who Jesus is. And they have a place to find him in their own way and their own worship, which is right over there. You know what I'm saying? But like th- this, this is what this is becoming. And the way we do that is we play our role, not my role. You know? But, but that's, we don't talk about that in church because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to be like, hey, people, we need to show up to church. Because today the mindset is, bro, you can't step on toes. No, if that is stepping, that's not stepping on toes. Stepping on toes is getting pulled apart by horses because of the message you preach. That's stepping on toes. Saying we need to show up to church when we can freely do so is not stepping on toes. That's called being an adult. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's called just, just life. You know? Some of y'all will be real mad at me after this, and I'm sorry. Uh, no, I mean, no, I'm not. So, how is God, how's God going to fix this narcissism issue among his people? How, how is he going to do this? He said this in verse 24 through 27, and I'm going to end. Matt, you can come up here. He says, The Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty, will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove your impurities and will restore your leaders as in the day of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice and her penitent ones with righteousness. God is going to remove our impurities. Okay? God doesn't say, you remove your own impurities. He says, I am going to remove your impurities. And when I do that, the result will be your identity restored. Okay? Verse 26. Afterward, you'll be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. What are the charges against them? Justice, righteousness, defend, not defending the oppressed, taking up the cause of the fatherless and widow. Zion will be restored into what it was by me removing your impurities. How is he going to remove the impurities? He's going to cut down every single layer of a tree that built itself as a phony and fake idea of who it is on top of the holy seed. But he's not cutting it down because he wants to cut it down. He's cutting it down because somewhere in the root system is holiness. In America right now, why, why is the church in America seem like it's being chopped down? Why are people leaving? Why is all this stuff? Why are churches closing? The reason this is happening is because somewhere down in the roots, even if we've never seen it, somewhere down in the roots is holiness. And the only way to get down there to find the holiness is to chop off all the stuff covering up the holiness. So we should be saying with complete trust and complete hope, Amen to what God is doing. This goes back to the ancient world. When if you went and asked them, what is hope? I've taught this before. They would not say, all things in my life are good, so I got hope. They would say, it doesn't matter how things are in my life. I'm choosing to see hope. Why do you see hope? Because I trust what God said. 
You know, so when I'm looking at our world today, I'm saying, I choose to see hope, not because things are all peachy, but because I trust what he said. And if he's doing any kind of cutting, it's because we are designed to be something that we are not, and he refuses to let us keep going in our delusion. How did Yahweh remove all their impurities? He did this by bringing justice. Think about the ministry of Jesus. Bringing justice, defending the oppressed, taking up the cause of the fatherless, and pleading the cause of the widow. The case of the widow. Because of how God created us, let us make man in our image. Because of how God created us, which is community with him, and the community he made to be partners with us, God connected us as one to his own body. This is, this is super deep stuff, but I, I just hang with me just one more second. I'm done. Remember what I said before. The brokenness of the least affects me and my functionality because we are one designed to live and move as one. So if my toe is broke, my functionality is hindered. Even though you never even think about your toes because they seem like they're super insignificant. If a toe is broke, my functionality is halted. Right? So the least, or what I would consider the least around me being broken and in brokenness affects me and my functionality because as Paul says, we are one. So when we were broken, it affected the functionality of the entire cosmos being both God and man's united home, like it was designed. And it did this by God's choice and therefore was on God to defend the cause of the oppressed and why Israel's charge was not doing so. Let me, let me just, that was super, super deep. God, when he said, let us make man in our image. The image and likeness stuff, we don't get in English. And in Hebrew, what God is essentially saying is, and Paul says this in Colossians 1, okay? And I think I have it right here. He said, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, which is relational. But then in verse 16, he says, in him... Jesus, God, in him, all things were created, heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authority. All things were created through, in, and for him. So when God said, let us make man in our image, just to review, God's community stretched and made room and placed us in that space. Good? So, if, if, uh, if one of you guys, Hannah and Tim, if Hannah and Tim had a baby, that would be, strength-wise, the least of this entire church, right? However, them having a baby, because they're in community with us, them making room for that baby suddenly is our church making room for something that seems insignificant. Right? So, God makes that. And what Paul says is, we are the body of Christ. Now, what is the cause of Israel? The, the charge against Israel 
is they didn't seek justice, didn't defend the oppressed. Their charge is they stopped caring about people that they thought didn't matter. Now, if God is charging them with that, we can take that a step further and say God keeps this perfectly. The only way that God can charge them for not doing it is if God himself were doing it. You with me? So what does that mean? While we were sinners, while we were seemingly nothing, we had trailed off into nothingness, God stepped in to seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. God becoming humanity was the ultimate laying down of oneself for the sake of the broken. If anyone had an excuse to be separate from others, it was God. Yet from the beginning, he refused to have a reality without his sons and daughters, even if that meant meeting them in their darkness, taking them by the hand, and shepherding them out. The first step, last point, to you and I living how Yahweh designed us to be is to make this community, the people that God has placed around us going after the same thing, a non-negotiable, active, present part of our lives. We cannot live out our identity. It's a huge statement. I'm okay with it. We cannot live out our identity completely without the church. I don't think it is possible because God made it impossible. I do not think it is possible for you and I to be fully in our identity without the family of God around us. I do not think that's possible. That's why when we shift our lives to have a true north that is for us at the sake of something that is for the people around us, things start going out of whack. I mean, like, I, I don't try this, but like, I mean, seriously, th there, when, the minute that we start choosing things that even if they're good for us, pull us apart from the communal aspect of what God is doing, that moment, suddenly, everything in our lives seems like it's chaotic. It seems like we're, you know what I mean? And it's because we, we were designed to be in the family of God, not to be a person trying to find something in the family of God on our own. That's why you can't do church on your own. That's not what church is. Church is the family. You know what I'm saying? But you and I can do church together, and that's why we do it. So this is super basic. But the second thing I want to say is, the reason I'm talking about this is because this is the world that Jesus was born into. This is what set up everything. Israel had forgotten about caring about the community. So God, in such a care for his community, became man. And he, when we say God lived a sinless life, yes, absolutely. But the example God came to give, he came for two things. He came to give an example of what God actually thinks about us. But he came to give an example of what it means for us to be who we are which of course means how we act individually. But what it really means is us caring about the people around us 
that have also been brought into the body of Christ. So if you look at Jesus' ministry, what, what is he always doing? He's going after uh, the woman at the well. And remember, the disciples show up when, she's, when he's talking to the woman at the well, and they say, why are you talking to this person? Don't you know who she is? You know, he goes to the woman that's about to be stoned to death. And even though that was the law, they were keeping the law to do that. It wasn't, it wasn't a sin against God for them to do that. But he shows up, and what does he do? He defends her cause. Why? Because she's the oppressed. Uh, over and over. Mary Magdalene was one of his primary followers, right? And we know through Scripture, she was very demon-possessed. And when Jesus met her, he did not say, that girl's demon-depressed, or demon-depressed, <laughs> demon-possessed, and we got, like, y'all, we got better stuff to do. No, he said, I refuse to leave her like she is. And that affected him. Him taking the time to do the detour to go to the woman at the well affected his ministry to the masses. What could he have done with the hours and hours and hours that detour took from his life? He could have done a lot of big things. That's the point. He's trying to tell them, I'm willing to lay down my own ambition to go find this daughter who has lost her way and bring her back home. So what I want to challenge you with this week, as we think about Christmas, this is the first part, is what, what are we doing just in our lives? What are we doing that... that we're living individual at the expense of our involvement in the community. Uh, what, what does, and I'm not, I, that includes this church. I'm talking about people around you, whatever. What, what, how are we living? What are the views that we have? Not like political views. What are the ways that we see things? The way that we think? The way that we process? What are some of the ways that are keeping us from being a people that care about other people? Like when things happen to people around you that aren't good, like do you act, do we care? Or do we say, that's awesome, I'm praying for you, and we just keep living our life? Like are we deeply affected by that? Do we sometimes, when somebody's walking, because we do, when somebody's walking through something that we don't even agree with, do we say, you know what, we're going to walk this out together? Or do we say, you better figure it out. Because what if Jesus had done that to every single person he came in contact with? None of them would have been found. You know what I mean? But like, next time somebody wants to come argue with you about a, a view on something or what they're going through, what would happen if you put your arm around You say, you know what? We're going to walk through this together. Even if we never agree on this, we're going to walk through this together. The worst that happens, you'll have a friend. You know what I'm saying? The best that happens, they might find out who Jesus actually is. But, but like, and this seems, and I, even as I was writing this, I was like, Lord, this seems so insignificant on the surface. You know what I mean? Like, care about the people around you. So, no, 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 but this is not. If we don't do this, it don't matter if angels come in here with wings of fire and all of us learn to speak 85 languages. You know what I'm saying? That, that it don't matter if we walk out this door and we take a look at somebody that in a previous way of thinking would be lesser than us, and we say, 
weather going through stinks, but that don't affect me, and I'm going to keep living my life. You know what I mean? But especially in, in this, like, like I, don't, I don't think Rachel's watching this, but Rachel's family's walking through a lot of stuff with her dad right now. And it's like, when, when we see that, are we like the, the type of people that say, man, stinks that you're walking through that, and we just keep going about our way? Or is, is there something on the inside of us that is deeply moved by the fact that she is being deeply moved by the fact that this situation is going on? You know, you know what I'm saying? It, it doesn't seem like it's a big thing, but that is a huge thing. To know that when you're walking through something, you got other people that are willing to meet you in the darkness and walk with you out of it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pray, and then and then we'll be done. I know this isn't the typical start of a Christmas service, but I think it's really important. And um and so I'm gonna pray, and then we'll be we'll be done. Lord, I thank you for this day. I, I just I thank you for um what you're pouring out on us right now, which is is not just um another great Christmas message. What you're pouring out on us is something that is very specific that I think you have called us to be the first fruits in what it looks like. You have called us to be the first fruits of a family that knows how to walk and live like a family. And so I pray this week you would bring people into our lives that are completely different than us that are walking through things that are completely different than we're walking through. And I pray that you would give us an opportunity to say what seems like, Paul says, what seems like the most weak, insignificant parts of the body are actually the ones that you cannot live without. The heart in our body is hidden. You can't see it. Yet without your heart beating, you don't live. And I believe there's people around us that are called to be the heartbeat of the body of Christ. That if we're not careful, we're going to walk right over them because they don't look on the outside like they're anything significant. I'm telling th- this is this is why there are people that are around us in our lives right now that are called to be monster prayer warriors or monster people of devotion or whatever the case may be in your kingdom coming in the earth right now that don't have a clue who they are and aren't going to know it unless we see what is really within them. So Lord, we're going to defend the oppressed. We're going to seek justice. We're going to take up the cause of the fatherless. We're going to stand with the widow and in that, I mean, we, we're going to see, we're going to see your kingdom explode like it never has. In your name, that we pray. Amen.